0: Hello, my fellow heathens. This is your host, Dr. Jerry Jockey, the world's most highly educated stand-up comedian. And it's my pleasure to be with you today. I'm going to be sharing my interview with John Pavrona with you in a few minutes. Before I get to that, let's do a little housekeeping. The last episode I released of The Comical Heathen was a behind-the-scenes look at my recent run for city council in the town that I live in, Painesville, Ohio. I might add my recent unsuccessful bid for city council. That was fine. I had a great time with a lot of great people. And I had a couple of my good friends, Jeremy Shear and Dan Brown, I'll record an interview with me where they asked me questions about what it was like. So please go listen to the last episode if you haven't already. During that episode, I did make a tentative, half-hearted, ill-advised announcement that I was doing the Comical con live show at the Calumary Arts Center in Toledo, Ohio, January 29th. And even when I said those words on that previous episode, I said, yeah, but with Omicron around, I bet it gets canceled. And so I get to pat myself on the back and be glad for being a genius, but sad for the fact that that show has been canceled. I'm in communication with the venue. They do want to have the show. We'll probably bring it back later in the year in the spring when things are a little less Omicroni. Sorry about any confusion generated around that. Of course, if any of the 12 people who listen to this podcast would like me to bring the live show to wherever it is you are living, send me a message at comicalheathen at gmail.com and let me know if I know there's even one person in that their town that would come and see the live show then that would be worth coming out to wherever you are so be sure to let me know now the interview i'm about to share with you is with a comedian called john poverono i met john under kind of unusual or uh, interesting circumstances i took part in an event i am actually now a footnote to history a lot of the joffies throughout history are footnotes to history like you may not know but when an astronaut took tony paco's chili sauce into the space shuttle into outer space, into orbit. That was the first time a meat product had been served in outer space. And you might not know, but Tony Paco's chili sauce is manufactured in a meat processing plant owned by Jaffe's. So there you go. Once again, a Jaffe is a footnote to history. Well, in this case, I was a footnote to history because in January of 2020, I believe January 22nd, and then for the next few days, my good friend Mark Riccadonna and his podcast partner, Richie Burns, decided to take their podcast, Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling, to Twitch in an attempt to break the world record for a stand-up comedy show uh, streaming, for a streaming stand-up comedy show, a record they did indeed set at that time. Of course, to get uh, four-plus days of continuous streaming comedy, they need hundreds of comedians to join them, and heck, uh, I'm good friends with Mark and some of the other people, so I was on for a while, and uh, you know... Yay, I contributed. <laughs> Yay, I contributed. Besides contributing my footnote to Mark and Richie's historic accomplishment, I met a lot of other comedians doing that fun and unusual, you know, event, one of whom was John Poverono. So I actually interviewed John in February and It took some time to get the post-production on this one done. Nothing to do with John. He's the best, and he is hilarious. And you should definitely follow him on Instagram because he not only is so funny, but he is an artist and posts like doodles and drawings and things. I bought one of his t-shirts. It was uh, original t-shirts. Fantastic. So there was a little bit of a delay, you know, when I went into campaigning mode in fall of 2021. The podcast went on hold, so I didn't even do an episode for like almost six months. So nothing to do with John or his wonderfulness, just me and my um, life management, time management skills. This is a great conversation. I'm going to preview it and I'm going to play it. But there is one thing I wanted to touch on. I have dedicated season two of The Comical Heathen to critical thinking skills. And there was something in the news lately which caught my attention. I'm not even going to do a full rant. I just want to, like, point at it and go, aha. And this was the headline that I noticed. Several news outlets reported on this. Uh, I just happened to catch the Washington Post headline first. That's what I'm going to use to get my conversation rolling for a couple minutes. Alex Jones must pay damages to Sandy Hook families in another defamation case, Judge Rules. So InfoWars' own Alex Jones has been involved in many defamation cases for his various conspiracy theory-oriented claims about crisis actors and Sandy Hook was all stage and other things of that nature. And people who's had their lives affected by these claims have started suing him. What I noticed when I saw this headline was that he's lost all these. He hasn't won any of these defamation cases. He's had numerous, what is called in the legal profession, default judgments. The default judgment is when a judge is waiting for the defendant to, it could be the plaintiff, produce their evidence so that they can go to court. Like to set a court date, there's like pre-setting a court date, they get organized. And Jones and his lawyers are just consistently not cooperating They're applying for extensions, but never, um, you know, producing anything or actually appearing and uh, are doing their part of their defense. And a judge is eventually put into a position where they have to make a default judgment. So there have been, just in 2021, at least four of these default judgments against Alex Jones. I went to his Wikipedia page just so I could see it all in one place. And I I doubt this is everything because I know of more than what is listed here. But in February 2017... He was ordered to apologize and retract his allegations that the owner of Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria was, you know, part of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. Jones had to issue in 2017 an apology against the Chobani Yogurt Company for trying to link them to child sexual assault and other things. He lost a case in 2018. He lost a Sandy Hook case in 2018. So he is losing case after case after case. But this reminded me of something. On January 6th, USA Today published an article. I shared this on social media, so you can go look it up. Here's what the headline says. It says, USA Today, January 6, 2021. By the numbers, President Donald Trump's failed efforts to overturn the election. Now, you might think that I'm about to, you know, pile on Donald Trump. And there's so many comedians like Stephen Colbert and John Oliver and Jimmy Kimmel and others who do such a good job. Um, that's not even where I'm going with this. I did do a gig over the summer, and I was featuring, and it was fine. And after one of my sets, a table of old, old, that sounds derogatory. Yeah, I'm going to rephrase that out of respect. A table of silver-haired citizens came over to my little booth where I was trying to sell my merch. Buy a coffee cup on my Etsy shop. I'll put a link. It came over to me and said, um, you shouldn't tell Donald Trump jokes, just lay off. And then they even walked away like they don't want to talk about it. They just wanted to scold me. So I was scolded, you know. The joke I told was had to do with his him by the pussy comment, which he said. And I actually talked to Lewis Black about this when I interviewed him. Check that interview out if you haven't. Yes, I interviewed Lewis Black. Thank you, Mr. Black, for your time. But he was like he's been doing comedy for decades. And people know you can make fun of the president. You make fun of Bush, you make fun of Obama. You make fun of Clinton, you make fun of Reagan. Comedians make fun of the president. Occasionally, you know, ardent supporters might take umbrage, but the idea that Trump supporters have that you can't tell a Trump joke, that that's somehow attacking the president or inappropriate or unfair, that's, like, new. What I'm really talking about is, I saw Alex headline about Alex Jones losing so many court cases, and he hasn't won one yet. And then I saw this headline about Donald Trump's failed efforts. And you know Donald Trump... You know, after the last election, his lawyers filed a number of lawsuits. How many lawsuits, you might ask, according to USA Today's January 6th article up to that date? 62 election-related lawsuits. How many defeats did he have? 61 election-related lawsuit defeats. Now, some cases were dismissed for lack of standing. Others were based on merits. Decisions have come from Democrat-appointed and Republican-appointed judges, including federal judges appointed by Trump. The lone victory, and it was a small one, a Pennsylvania judge sided with the Trump campaign ruling that voters could not go back and cure their ballots if they failed to provide proper identification three days after the election. The ruling, in effect, affected very few actual votes and did not change the outcome. Which Biden won by 81,000 votes. So his one victory was a a very minor one indeed. Now, if I'm not here to um, bury Trump, why am I mentioning this? I'm linking it to Alex Jones because all of these, all the Alex Jones losses and all the Trump losses, have a thing in common, my fellow heathens. They have a thing in common lack of evidence. Yes, that's right, you heard me. Trump's cases kept getting dismissed and thrown out and failing for lack of evidence. Judge Parker said of Trump's lawyers' claims that they were nothing but speculation and conjecture. Several judges have scolded Trump's team for wasting the court's time for bringing cases without any evidence. Some judges have have filed actions against the lawyers for abusing the judicial system. Some um, judge, one judge, Judge Parker, ordered pro-Trump lawyers to reimburse election officials for the cost of defending these lawsuits. When you are uh, going to a court case, both sides are supposed to present evidence that it's an exercise in debating of evidence. You're supposed to bring evidence. But there's a saying in critical thinking circles Extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Alex Jones claimed that the Sandy Hook victims were crisis actors. Trump and his lawyers claim that Joe Biden stole the election through election fraud. Those are very extraordinary claims, my friends. Let's see the evidence. A claim without evidence is like pie without filling, dry and disgusting, and nobody wants to eat it. And let's make another thing clear that my conspiracy theory friends sometimes get confused about. In logic, there's an expression, which is burden of proof. So when we say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, it is the person making the extraordinary claim who is obligated to bring that evidence. Do you hear me, QAnon? I'm looking directly at you, Ted Cruz. Can't even deal with InfoWars. You've got to have the evidence. One of the most annoying things is when someone making an extraordinary claim says back to you, "Will you prove it. Someone says they believe in Bigfoot, and I say, hey, man, that's cool. Show me some evidence. And they say, well, show me the evidence that Bigfoot doesn't exist. Uh-uh, that's not how it works, my friends. When you make a claim about Sandy Hook victims or election fraud or Bigfoot, You, yes, you, must be the person providing the evidence. You can't flip it around. It's not a record album that you turn over to the B-side. When you say there was election fraud, you got our attention. You are the A-side of the record. Let's play it to the end and see what kind of music you have. All right, well, that was just a little ditty based on these headlines that were both about these fraudsters losing all their cases because of lack of evidence evidence my friends that's what we want we want evidence well i have some evidence for you evidence that i actually spoke to john poverono and if you're a john poverono fan or if you're just meeting him today so a very fun lively conversation it had the real green room vibe of just comedians hanging out talking about comedy i met john on that record-setting live stream and i reached out to him afterwards hey i want to interview you and he's very gracious he's very fun he's very funny couple things we talk about, you know, we talk about satire, we talk about his beginnings in comedy, we talk about what it was like to do that live stream. I was on for like half an hour, he was on for most of it, (laughs) to the point where he was hallucinating at points. I'll let him tell you about that. We both like to do crowd work, so we do get into a thing about his approach to crowd work and that kind of thing. And I always ask comedians if I have a chance what advice they would give beginners on satire, And I'll just tease you that his comments on that part of the conversation were really uh, engaging, uh, really helpful, too. So, uh, instructive. So, without any further ado, here is my interview from February of 2021 with John Poverono. All right. So, let me take a deep breath and sort of introduce you and will. And if I mispronounce your name, correct me, because people always mispronounce my name. Right. So it's Poveromo. Yeah,
1: no it's Poveromo, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's kind of is pronounced the way it looks once you think about it for yeah. a second. It's a very phonetic yeah, exactly. name.
1: Exactly, <laughs> it's never that hard, and people are always like, "How do you say it?" Like, and they <laughs> add other letters in there. And yes. Trying to figure shit out, and I'm just like, you know what? That's not. That's not necessary. <laughs>
0: hey, well. The voice you hear is John Poveromo, no extra letters necessary, <laughs> and like, we have something in common, which is people commonly mispronounce our names. I'm uh, your yes. host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, not Jeffrey, not Joffrey, not the Joffrey Ballet, and Jaffe can go fuck himself, Jerry <laughs> Jaffe, but let's talk about our guest. Welcome, John, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for, thanks for doing this uh, interview and this conversation with me. Uh, no this problem. is the Comical Heathen Podcast, where we talk about satire and comedy and religion and anything else you want to talk about. Let's just make sure that people know uh, who we're talking to. So, John, you're a comedian. How long have you been doing comedy? Uh, I've
1: been doing comedy for 15 years.
0: 15 years? So, you, what, you started when you were 8? If you haven't <laughs> seen John, he looks very youthful. <laughs> I started when I was twenty. Where where at? You're introduced as being from New Jersey. Is that where you're from?
1: No, I'm actually from Brooklyn. New okay. York. I was born in Brooklyn and uh, I grew up in New Jersey. But I moved around a lot. I was I'm born in Brooklyn. I lived in Arizona for four years. I say I. I my parents lived in Arizona <laughs> and I was between jobs, so I was staying with them. You know. But then we we moved back to Brooklyn for a little bit and then we lived in Arizona and then we lived in New Jersey and then from that point on, I kind of grew up in New Jersey. But no, I started in New York. I started stand up in New York. Okay. And, uh, in the clubs in New York.
0: So you were twenty years old in New York. What were you doing? when you were 19 and uh, a half dude
1: i was in new york all the time like even when even before i started doing stand-up like as soon as i got a car my friends and i would drive into the city all the time okay our town is fucking boring as shit so mm-hmm. we we were like let's just go but, but you know we didn't do anything like too debaucherous either though when we were in high like, it was like high school so we would go on the weekends and like make excuses to go into the city but we just wanted to be anywhere but where we live <laughs> So we were like, Oh, we're gonna go to the city and we're gonna to go to this uh museum and we did. We would go like South through Seaport, walk all okay. over the city, go to Central Park, like go to the fucking museums and weird places and So when did you get interested
0: when did you get interested in comedy? How did that like comedy bug start oh, for comedy you? I've been
1: interested in since I was in like elementary school. In sixth grade we had these um fake yearbooks because
0: you know, nobody
1: <laughs> nobody gives a fuck about a sixth grader graduating
0: right but we sure. did we had to put down
1: like you know we, had, we made these like faux yearbooks or whatever and uh i put down you know i wanted to be either a comedian or cartoonist you know because okay. i always used to say you know i've never had any intention of making money so sure. those the only Good. two like career goals i had but uh yeah i was interested in comedy from a super young age right. just because i was a huge fan of robin williams sure growing up. you know yeah and then because it was like he did the voice of the bat in front of And so when you're a kid right that the bat in front of is fucking hilarious because it's Robin Williams. And then, you know, the voice of Jeannie and Alan right. And then all of a sudden you see Morgan Mindy and it's that same voice, same guy. You're like, oh shit, yeah. it's that guy. And then if you do a little bit more digging, you're like, oh, he started out in stand-up, but what the fuck is stand-up? Okay. So then it became this, you know what I mean? Like,
0: Yeah, he's, so he like regressed this. through the the reverse history of Robin Williams and landed at stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And everybody from that, from that era, everybody on TV yep. was a comic for, at some point in time. So Ellen... Paul Reiser, Jerry Seinfeld, Tim Allen, Roseanne Barr, anybody with a fucking TV show was a a comic at some point in time. Yeah,
0: I mean, I'm not 100% sure. I will say I'm old enough, um, John, I'm a little Mm -hmm. older than you, that I remember, and this is not like a false memory, I swear to you, I remember Mm -hmm. seeing Robin Williams' guest appearance on Happy Days and it blowing my mind. Like, I saw it in real time, on television, and like, mm-hmm. there's some, like, wow, some charisma comedy changed up the energy of the show. But it was, his appearance on Happy Days was remarkable. Yeah. And then I think it was Gary Marshall realized, like, that guy should have a show. Like, he had such yes. a big reaction from one appearance. He, they brought him back right. a second time, but his first appearance, they already knew, like, we got to do something with this guy.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, so you're 20, uh, the first time you got on stage mm-hmm. to try comedy.
1: Yeah, first time I got on stage, I was twenty. How did that go? Well, actually, um, yay! Not, lo- that, but that's a that's a it's a weird way to start out when you when you do well the first time because sure. you have no idea what happens every other time you go on stage. <laughs> You're like, I don't understand. Yeah. So it was very bizarre. Yeah, my first time on stage is at Caroline's on Broadway. Okay, and I did five minutes of material, and I was basically like, like it was it was a it was a great time. I I just had a lot sure. of energy when I was on stage and. Uh, I had good material for first time on stage or whatever. I got a bunch of laughs. Right. It went over really well. Right after that, the next time I was on stage, I bombed. Because I, I was, like, still, like, I, I had to do 10 minutes, which was hilarious. Because
0: okay. Because
1: somebody had left or didn't make it to the show. And whoever was, I think it was Lori Sumner at the time, was booking the shows at uh, Gotham, like, at the New Town or whatever. She was like, hey, so-and-so left. Can you do 10 minutes? And, like, an idiot. of course. I mean, every time I wake up. But I was like, yes. can I do- yeah, sure. I can do 10 minutes. <laughs> And I was like, I was hilarious the first time. Why yeah. wouldn't I be?
0: Sure, this is and easy. Then, <laughs> yeah.
1: And I had like a note, like notes of like my dumb set yep. and like some material I thought I would do. And then the other ones, it just it did not go over well. Right. And then, and then after that, it was like hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss.
0: You know, and, uh, as a child of the 70s, I was inspired by, especially in my wanting to try comedy, the storytelling styles of Bill Cosby. Oh, and so okay. I would do stories like my whole five minutes would be one story. Right. And I had this 7th 8th time 7th 8th time on stage. I told this story. I won't do the whole thing now. It probably wasn't really that funny, but it was about uh, I've been to Guam a couple of times and it was about oh, something wow. that happened to me in Guam. So it was interesting. I put some jokes sure. in and it went pretty well. Again, 7th 8th time on stage. Mm-hmm. And then 2 weeks later, same open mic, I go up and try to do the same story. Mm-hmm. But a it wasn't five minutes long anymore. Like, it was going long. I was getting the light, and I couldn't understand. Because <laughs> in my brain, I was saying the same words in the same order at the same way I practiced it, and right. no one was laughing at any of the little jokes. Right. Which So, like, time was stretching out in every direction against me. Like,
1: <laughs> the storytelling stuff is so, I mean, I always um, admire, like, to be, to be able to go on stage and try to tell a story Right. when no one knows who you are. Because yeah. like, when Cosby does it, sure. it's fine. You know, you're like, everybody knows him. Yep. Uh, You have no choice. You've spent the money. Yep. And it's a lot of money. And you're sitting in that audience. So you kind of go along with it. But when it's like an unknown comic at a club and they're like, I'm going to tell you about Guam and they have no idea who you are. (laughs) So they have no idea how to react to that story anyway. Yes. It's just, it's like layers of difficult.
0: Well, I'm going to give you a a compliment. You're, I mean, you're very good. You're very funny. But I want to say you're really good at is the turn. Your punchlines going in unexpected directions are very good. I want to just say that. It's, Thank you. And uh, one of your videos has Great. like a, a thing where you start talking about how Trump says stupid things. Mm-hmm. But then when you get to like your punchline, it's about how your generation shouldn't be given guns. Like it's not right. a joke about Trump at all. It's a mm-hmm. joke about uh, people with anxiety. So it was just like an example of a very unexpected turn
1: that was always kind of one of my favorite ones to do at the time you know i was probably and at this point now hopefully we won't need it anymore right <laughs> uh change it up a little bit eventually but like yeah that was always my one of my favorite things to do because it was we do some trump material in the beginning and then i figured people would understand people would just mm-hmm. assume that that was the direction i was going right. in and i hate that right it's like it's like one of those things where like i love the audience they're right. great i don't have like that really visceral relationship with them anyway but I do get annoyed, like I do, I do have a little still bit of like of a comedian fuck you in there. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, if you think you know where I'm going, I will sat, I will either sat <laughs> and talk my own bit
0: yeah. or I will do the twit. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To go back in time a little bit, saying yeah. I've watched a bunch of your videos in the past few weeks since we met, you're part of a, yes. is a do we call it a podcast? Jokes and storytelling? Dude, Drinks don't and don't storytelling?
1: Know- yeah. Well, the the podcast is Drinks, Jokes and Storytelling. Thank you. Drinks, um, Jokes and Storytelling. Yeah. And the and it's on Twitch. That's the right. channel that we have on Twitch, and we have like a little bit of a network thing. And but when yeah. you say
0: we, who's your partners or co-hosts?
1: Uh, there's a bunch of us. There's Mark Rikada, Rishi Byrne, Jason Pollock, Vinny Nardiello, James Oaks, uh, Justin Gonzalez. Is, okay,
0: uh,
1: but he's in, he's not even a comic. He's in, he's funny, a funny funny dude, entertainer, opera mm-hmm. singer, travel the world.
0: Okay, classier than us. <laughs> sure, you need one of those.
1: <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, we need it. We need a, We need somebody to bring up the. Class. Right, it's all of us together. And we have our producer Tom Tom Banis, who I think what we're going to talk about as that event is organized. The whole basically came up with the idea to do uh, charities, charity event. Like he's he used to be a live events coordinator before the pandemic. Okay. he still is, but we're we're all waiting to go back to work. Right. He uh, he knew these two charities really well: the Children's Brain Tumor Foundation and Star Treatments. And then was like, why don't we combine our efforts and do something for them? And then it became. Justin did a 24 hour telethon to raise money for MS, which he has. Tom was like, Well, what's the world record for the longest stand up telethon thing or whatever? He looked that up, found out it was 80 and a half hours, was like, Let's fucking beat it. <laughs> and then we did the charity event combined with that and never left the internet.
0: Right. <laughs> so you did like We've a five day long show. How long was your, how, in the end, how long was your record?
1: 90, 90 something hours. I think okay. I want to say like ninety-three,
0: maybe. So, first uh, of all, congratulations to you and the team. Thank you, and also for all the yeah. fundraising that you did as well. I'm just trying to imagine in this like media age, internet age, what is the record called? I know there's a record for the longest live stand-up show because hilarities in Cleveland used to have that record.
1: It's the world record for the longest streaming comedy show.
0: Okay, so that is part of the record's title. Yeah,
1: streaming is the, yeah, part of the title.
0: Okay, excellent. Congratulations. I know some of the guys you just mentioned, but in particular, I'm Comedy Brothers with uh, Mark Riccadano. Yes. I'm from Ohio. He's from Ohio. He escaped Ohio. I escaped Ohio but came back. Dot, dot, it's dot. It's
1: because I feel like the two, like, out of the two of you, I would, I would be like, oh, yeah, I know, you seem like you're from Ohio. And <laughs> Mark seems like he was... Born out of a like an Italian sausage cart, like right? <laughs> yes. Mark,
0: like, people in Little Italy are telling him it's a bit much, Mark. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Mark did drag me in, so I was on for a couple of hours with you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes. I, thanks for including me. I had a good time and also meeting a bunch of people, uh, some new people. So was there any moments that stand out? I mean, it's five days. There must be any any guest, yeah, any um, joke, any moment, any weirdness.
1: Yeah. There's a couple. So one of the best ones, uh, for sure, was when Big J was on. It was like five o'clock. I don't know why he chose five a.m. <laughs> I didn't, like I didn't even know comedians got up at five a.m. <laughs> but I happened to be up anyway because that was the tw- that was the day I stayed up twenty four hours straight, okay. a little over twenty four. So I was just passing by the five o'clock hour, um, and J Ogerson was on, and he was on with his ex-wife Carla. Actually, they're not technically divorced yet. Okay. But they're se separ- they've been separated for years. Carla's boyfriend like a smattering of a few other people right and one of them being jason Pollock, the guy one of the guys from our channel and (laughs) i don't know what uh, jason's known jay for a long time jay and everybody knows jason because jason books a ton of rooms and you know dabbled in stand-up and stuff so out of the blue jason just goes now jay how do you know carl carla are are you brother and sister or I mean, with the straightest face, <laughs> and I literally, like, without, like, I just went, what the
0: <laughs> like,
1: like, and everybody starts laughing, and Jay just goes, I have a 19-year-old daughter with her, <laughs> and then <laughs> Jay, <laughs> Jay's just like, oh, you know, and then he realizes what he's done, right. and then... Like it was, I mean, the amount of like shitting on Jason we did after that right. was hilarious. But that was a great, that was a great, just like, and also it came on the heels of like them all talking about it, right? Like, like making jokes about it and talking about right. their daughter and Jake going, Carla, would you just give me the divorce papers already? Like, <laughs> like just like of this right. shit. And Jason is just a, you know, a bizarre s. Like he's hilarious and he's always got these little not notecards and that would just fucking crush this. Um, <laughs> My favorite thing is like when there's just a bunch of us on screen at the same time Mm -hmm. and we're all shitting on each other you know like playfully obviously but like it's just it's always a lot of fun to do we had a couple glitches that were just hilarious you know rick overton in the very beginning couldn't get on and just kept buffering just couldn't get on it kept buffering right kept buffering couldn't get his camera to work and I was like, this is a, just an entire improv bit on how bad the internet, you know what I mean? Like right. so we were just joking. About that. Yeah. There was a lot of good moments, but one of the, but the only thing, like one of the best things that stood out to me was every time somebody, just how much it meant to them to see everyone, which sure. we, didn't, we thought it would be a lot of fun. We, we, you know, 80, you know, just trying to beat the record was going to be amazing. And then slowly, but surely like each time people came on and, comedians came back on again there's a lot of comedians that like sure just came to sit just came to see was on hang out you know they were watching the stream constantly and then every now and again each one of them would be like you have no idea how much i needed this like just to see everybody it just became the biggest backstage hang
0: that right no yep. one
1: knew we all needed like everybody knew we missed stand up yeah. missed each other but seeing everybody on the right. screen at the same time and how many people wanted to come in and and just to be in the fucking room with yeah. other comedians that meant a lot. That, that was the standout
0: thing for me. Well, I dipped in every day, Not and was on at one point, but I dipped in every day, watched you guys, saw who was on, occasionally texted in, whatever, whatever. But yeah. it did start to come across as the world's largest green room. Like it was just yeah. hundreds yeah. of comedians hanging out. Yeah. So I was looking um, at your bio, and I'm going to turn our attention to the theme of the podcast a little bit now, sure. which is satire. I see you've done a lot of television writing, including for some of the news networks like HLN and Fox. Yeah. How do you, um, you know, approach writing or what's that like? I'm sure each job was a little different, so it might be hard to generalize. But, you know, what's your approach as a comic writer when you're writing material for news shows? It's
1: hard to clarify that in, like, a bio sometimes. But, like, the misconception is that, like, I was writing for the anchors, but that's not the case. Like, it was um, segments. And I know know you know this, but other people, like, nobody understands. Because they're always, like... I'll get audience members who ask me, like, how did you write for, C- like, what part of CNN did you, and I'm like, I didn't, like, uh, there's segments that they have, so anything yeah. that they have, with, usually for other comedians, so okay. usually it's like, hey, we're doing this, we're hosting this segment, here's block A through D, Okay. you know, and these are the topics we're covering, and we need 15 jokes on each Sure. One, and then you know, and then the last minute. Right. So, God, I did that like directly for about three, four years. Like all the shows, every sports like ESPN. Sure. Uh, Fox was mostly I, I wrote for a dude who used to have to be the liberal punching bag for Hannity when he would pop on a Hannity. There's no winning on that show. Everybody right. shouted over you. Right. And it was really frustrating as a writer. Like that's why I learned to like that your jokes are probably not gonna make. Like you're gonna put all this work into stuff. Right. <laughs> but unless your guy who's going on, who's getting those opportunities, can fight that fight, right. Your jokes are not going to get hurt.
0: Right. Yep.
1: Or, or, and, and, you know, sometimes he didn't have a choice either. It was like they don't let you, you know, whatever oh, yeah. It is, they may move on. And now, that was frustrating for me because that was the only time, like, I'm not a sports guy, but that was the only time I think I remember sitting down screaming at the television, like, (laughs) (laughs) or trying to send jokes in the middle of the program. Sure. So, like, they're, you know, whatever, where I'm like, you know, they're lying about, you know, like, you got to say this. So, yeah, that was kind of frustrating. And then at that point, I think I learned to distance myself from that part of it, not watch the show. Okay. In the beginning, you're like, oh, my God, I really care. I want to see if my joke lands and if they deliver it correctly. And if it gets on TV. (laughs) Then after that, I was like, I don't fucking care anymore. Just give me the money. Right. And I hope the jokes, you know, if they're funny, they're funny. But uh, yeah, so that was kind of like how that works. You learn to write quickly.
0: Sure. Because
1: those blocks change fast. Topics can change.
0: You mm-hmm. know,
1: sometimes you don't get them until two hours before the show is. Sure. So it's like you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, and you're like, are they? And it's funny because, like, you're the guy you're writing for, mm-hmm. um, whatever the comic is, whatever the event is or whatever, sometimes they're waiting to get it from somebody else. So they sure. know the longer they have, so they're stressed. You're stressed. It's this like <laughs> intense uh, gun to your head kind of situation to do right. it. Which, but but made me a you know a better writer in the sure. end. Sure.
0: So you said you learned to write fast, almost with a metaphorical sort of time gun. Yeah. Put to your head. What did you learn about writing? Like
1: one of the things I learned too is just how to process mm-hmm. information, like and what you what what could be used as jokes. You know what I mean? So like, okay. like when I was first starting out, you're as a when you're. When you're young and you're doing it, like, you know, you're used to writing stand-up for yourself. So you're only going on stage. You kind of right. know what's funny and what's at the core of it. And then when you're given, like, information, like a news mm-hmm. article or whatever.
0: Yep.
1: Or whatever it is. Like For instance, like, the sports stuff. I'm not a sports guy. Okay. Um, you know, I don't mind watching it. Like, sure. it's fine. But I just don't know the stats. I don't know the players. And so one of the things I learned is if you know how to write a joke, you can write a joke about anything. Okay. So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be inside sports to do it. The funny thing is, is one of the guys I was writing for who was going on those sports shows thought I was a sports guy, which I didn't know that I didn't know that either. Like he asked me to write for him because he was like, I I think he thought I liked sports. But the entire time he would, when we were doing that, I was like, I fucking hate this shit, right. you know. And I was like, <laughs> who gives the fuck about, you know, whatever. But yeah. like, I wrote in that perspective, so like I would get the kind of information of what the thing was or whatever. And I had a buddy who's a sports writer, so I would be like, why do people hate this guy? What's this right. guy like? Yada, yada. But none of my jokes included. Like uh, statistics or anything right. like that about the game, no numbers. But I just wrote around that. So you have like it gives me the it gave me the ability to go, all right. Look, here's a new story, but this line, this line, and this line mm-hmm. are what the crux of that is, and I can turn those into jokes. And the rest of it didn't matter because <clears throat> you're just it's just about the speed and making your point and then moving right. the fuck on. Sure. Whereas whereas I feel like in the beginning when you're writing, you can get really bogged down by just superfluous information.
0: Sure. When you are doing something similar to what you just described. But for a news program, or news network, someone making an appearance on a news network, how did you apply what you just said about sports to political humor or satire? So
1: that was a little bit different because I wasn't like I have my political bent. And I'm right. an ex- extreme, I would say extremely liberal, and, but not like woke liberal. You know what I mean? Like well, there's a, there's
0: a, I, I've read your Instagram stream. And by the way, anyone listening to the sound of my voice should immediately follow John on Instagram. It's fantastic. Ah, thank you. But so uh, if you did, you would know what he's saying right now about being liberal, but not woke liberal. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. And it's so, but I, I like, yeah, I like, I am very like progressive in that way or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but you have to make sure that you're writing for who you're writing for sometimes the stuff that i would really want them to lean into i had to back off on because that's okay. not where they wanted to go sure and it would frustrate me because i'm like in my head i was like you've got this opportunity but then i was also like well it's their their career their life their job sure. and they don't want to piss off the the host of the show or whatever it is so that was the only frustrating thing but the but other than that i like um absorbed i was always reading politics anyway right. so it was most of the time they would send me the topics and i'd be like oh okay like i already <laughs> figured out, like, you know, I was already I was already reading that and writing jokes, jokes about, about it. it. I'll tell you what the difficult thing was. OK, Um, was because I'm so I, I love reading about that kind of stuff anyway. And it was just who mm-hmm. I am giving away a good joke. There were times where like I would already be reading whatever the fuck was going on and writing material and stuff based off of that. Okay. And then all of a sudden they would need me because they were going to go on a show and then go like. Uh yeah, it's this, this and this topic and I'm like and I, I would just have this like uh moral dilemma mm-hmm. where I'm like I've got a really fucking good joke. And then I would just be like, I don't think I'm gonna give it to him <laughs> <laughs> And I would be because like, I like it. And then there were times where I just kinda did like if I like there were times where like I would tweet something and it would get like a shit ton of likes, retweets, okay. whatever it is, and then of course the topic would come up, you know, in a thing and i'd be like all right i would delete the tweet really just so it didn't look like you know anything was ripped off of me or whatever right. and then just pass the joke on and collect the money for it
0: sure but i need <laughs> the money anyway but, sure you
1: know, those were fucking moments where i was like oh it's so good and i <laughs> but i was so relatively unknown <laughs> anyway at the time and and young i was like it doesn't matter if i have it like right what
0: are you going to do with it anyway <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i was like this isn't going to put me over the edge right and, <laughs> make me famous or anything like that and this
1: guy's already on tv so there, there are moments like that where you're like battling your own ego
0: right so what do you think makes uh satire or political humor work
1: i think what makes it, i think what makes it work is the uh it's a weird to say it, but the audience makes it work because okay. if they're not feeling it you know right like like it's like to me political satire is about a collective cathartic feeling okay where you're like frustrated with this Oh my God, that's a hilarious point right. of view. I didn't think of that about this. This makes me feel better about this momentarily. Right. It's just about a release. It's like or, or like not only to feel better about it, but you can feel better about something because other people are angry about it. And that's another thing too. That's another thing satire can, can do for you too. Is like this is a, a thing that drives me fucking crazy. It makes me mm. enraged. Okay. Here's this spin on it. And it's like, this is the absurdity of it. You mm-hmm. can point it out. Everybody in the room goes, yes fucking that, that's hilarious. And then, you know, it, it alleviates, and it gives them a little thing to think about. It's, it's, mm-hmm. That's what makes it work. Otherwise, I feel like, then, if, if it doesn't if it doesn't make that kind of connection, you're literally just screaming at people on sure. a soapbox. Like, I think there's a fine line.
0: Well, Freud suggested, and maybe he was wrong, but it seems relevant to what you're saying. Freud <laughs> suggested that um, they're going to have a celebrity death match. Uh, John Poverono versus Freud. Uh, <laughs> fight it out in the clay ring. So oh, just um, you know, he he thought that humor was a way to sort of therapeutically release anxiety about yeah. taboo taboo subjects that people can't easily talk about in their daily real lives. And one could imagine um, to apply that to what you just said in a way. You need an audience who feels anxiety about what you're talking about. Like, Yeah. <laughs> you the most part, they yeah. all do. Like, yes,
1: <laughs> that's a, but that's the craziest thing though. Like that's a good point that you said about you know what what Freud had said about comedy or whatever because when I talk about like saying I'm liberal, but I'm not woke liberal, I know that like creates some kind of, you know, emotional stir with like, especially like people who are younger or whatever. But what I usually mean by that is like, there's a tug of war going on for how Mm -hmm. like mentally unstable people can be, especially on the internet and Twitter, where I feel like they're not really dealing with their mental health well. And it shows (laughs) because like comedy is a way of dealing with a variety of mental health issues, but also anxiety, depression fear sure. um you know and com- comedians are the people that are putting that at the forefront right and, and taking all that and the people who are laughing at it are also trying to alleviate themselves or whatever so right. that's a huge coping mechanism yes and what i find so bizarre about how low culture tends to be and the internet tends to be is that there's a group of people going i don't want you to deal with your emotions that way right i don't want you to cope that way right you need to cope The way I feel, the way things make me Mm -hmm. feel better. These are these are also the same people who are like, we should be more sensitive. Well, this is how a collection of people fucking deal with their emotions by talking about death and cancer and you know their rape stories and their their fucking inability to you know get hard, you know whatever whatever it is. Yep, like and they don't acknowledge it as a coping mechanism. So I'm like, right. how well how can you possibly, or how sensitive can you possibly be if you don't understand that there are a myriad like of ways for people to deal with their mental instability?
0: For your own act, when you're grappling with current events, yes. do you have a craft for writing about satire, or just is it the same um, as writing any other type of joke, or how do you approach the subject?
1: Basically, like all jokes whether you're writing about satire or anything else need to follow the same i feel like same joke pattern
0: mm-hmm. you know what i
1: mean like whether people want to admit it or not like even people who are like freeform, still have to have right. the same basic rhythm of like a shaky go- you know what i mean like yeah. people you know so those are all the same beats it's all the same beats it's just a different way of doing it you know as far as like uh like it all comes from like how i feel about the topic and okay processing or whatever like I'm, I'm not a big fan of like um you know sometimes my manager or whatever will be like hey he'll send me a news article be like hey it'd be really you should have an opinion on this and i hate that shit right because i'm like sometimes i do sometimes i don't i don't feel like i don't like generating fault fault faux outrage yep. just to go on stage and talk about something current but what's in my act is stuff i am passionate about so that comes easy to me to make that into a joke what i do do and i'm sure you do this too or mo- you know most people doing on stage is I normally don't lead with it unless I'm in, unless I know I'm in like a place where the audience is cool with that. Sure. It's one of the only times I think I, I don't want to say placate, but it's one of the only times I, I make that adjustment. Sure. Where like, uh, when I'm in DC, right. I can absolutely lead with political material. I yes. can absolutely go up with just, right. This is what's going on. This is how I feel. And it's fine. They love that shit. Right. You know, and they're smart and they're usually young and whatever, you know, if I'm in, you know, Oklahoma, uh, right. <laughs> I do not do that, but no. like, but I still do my material. Like, so I still will do like, I'll, I'll just lead into it with personal stuff first. And then yeah. once they like me enough.
0: Yes. The like me, that's the, out. the key. If you're yeah. on the road, when you're at a, a, a venue with random people, you want to yeah. make sure they like you before you take them anywhere tricky. Exactly. <laughs> and
1: the difference is too, do you, do you still take them? Do you still take them regardless of, uh, I don't ever change my act. Okay. Like, so I don't leave anything out. Okay. I may, I may adjust like perception of stuff here and there a little bit, but I still, I still leave it in no matter where I am, which is why uh, I've gotten threatened in Phoenix and Uh, Michigan and like, you know, had several issues in certain places, but
0: I do something a little different than what you're describing because I have two different acts. Okay. So I have what I call my feature club act. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mark comes out to the funny stop in Cuyahoga Falls. Shout out to Pete. We all love Pete who runs the funny stop. Ooh. I don't know if you've ever been there before or not, but I've um, never been there. No. Ask Mark about it; he'll give you the full skinny. Past couple of years, I usually feature for Mark. Nice. So when I'm featuring for somebody, I feel like I don't want to derail the show. I feel like I'm like the warm-up comic.
1: Sure, sure. I have a weird relationship with that kind of stuff too. Mm-hmm. Like if it were me, like, like I, I respect that that you mm-hmm. like the, the idea, and I'm, for most most of the time, like, there's stuff I'll leave out if I am opening opening for somebody where I'm like, ah, oh, might not be a good idea. I'll just do whatever. Right. And then there's also a part of me that's like, if they can't follow that, why are they headlining?
0: Sure, yes.
1: (laughs) Do you ever get that, like, attitude about it where you're like, I'm a very, um, I like to riff with the audience. Sure. And it's, I like doing the crowd work stuff, but it's not, hey, where are you from, how are you? First of all, it's boring to do the same shit every day. Sure. (laughs) And when I started doing stand-up, I liked doing that, like, I was, I like being off the cuff. Like, that's why I like that telethon thing, too, because... It is just rapid fire, whatever comes to your mind. Yeah. I pride myself on being quick. I like it. Yep. And I like staying sharp. When I was starting out doing stand up, I used to go on stage with like three jokes that I knew would work <laughs> and then not do anything and then try to survive. Sure. And that made me stronger on stage. And I didn't particularly care whether
0: the right. owner exactly. thought I was
1: good or not. Or like, I would get things like if it went really well, they would be like, I can't believe you're this young and you're that comfortable on stage and you're that quick on stage and if it didn't go well they would be like you're way too green to work here again you'll n- this is not gonna work right. for you so getting those mixed things I'd be like I literally just depends on whatever and I don't care what anybody else does so I had this weird at it like but I, I do like well John,
0: John Oliver said an uh, interesting thing recently I think he was on the Colbert show last week relative <laughs> to when we were recording this <laughs> So uh, John Oliver was on the Colbert show earlier this year <laughs> And he uh, just made the comment that, because um, Stephen Colbert didn't come from stand-up, he came from, like, sketch and improv, but yes. John Oliver comes yeah, from stand-up. Did. John Oliver said, once you've bombed about ten times, no one can hurt you anymore. Like, oh, yeah, no. no, no nothing is going to no. happen at this show, good or bad. Well, good is right. good, but nothing bad is going to happen at this show that's going to affect me. <laughs> that's so true. It's not. And,
1: and nothing, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the best thing, though, too. That's like, not only can nothing in that show hurt you, but when you bomb that many times in front of strangers mm-hmm. of, of, Different sizes, you know, yeah. like 200 people, 300 people. Nothing can really hurt you in life. Like, there's nothing anybody can say to me close to me or close <laughs> to me. Right. That will af- I'm like, I right. don't really give a fuck. So, you, know,
0: you didn't have an orgasm. At least I didn't bomb in front of 200 strangers, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not that big a
1: deal. I enjoy creating something out of nothing in the room when somebody yes. says something or somebody calls out yeah. or if I can work off of a joke, off of an audience right. member, off of whatever. Like, I do encur- like I do encourage that kind of stuff. Mm. And some comics can't do it, so it scares right. the shit out of them.
0: What other uh, comedians who do satire do you think do it really well? Like, who would you point at and go, that's the gold standard yeah. for satire right now?
1: Oh, my God. So I would always look at, like, John Stewart, Louis Black.
0: Okay, uh, sure.
1: You know those guys who hmm. like it, it's almost like when they do when those guys do it so well. You know John Oliver, like you're like, well, why am I?
0: You exactly.
1: You don't need to add it more. And Bill Maher, I loved Bill Maher when I was growing up. Uh, those guys are hilarious. And then there's like uh, Michelle Wolf when sure. she does, you know, when she did the correspondence. Yeah, show, it was amazing. Classic. You know, I,
0: one of the I best ones ever.
1: Colbert did it. So those guys were always brilliant to me. I mean, I'm sure there's more that I'm missing.
0: Um, um, there's an interview that Colbert did about that um, his correspondence dinner just to boil down to the comment that he made that I want to share is um, someone he was repeating that someone had said to him like yeah you really stuck it to him you just said whatever you know that's like brave speech whatever blah 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 and Stephen Colbert's response was it's important to me that people laugh like the joke is the important thing I'm not just there to rant at the president or something I'm there to tell jokes and so if I need the jokes to work and the jokes people to laugh are else what I'm there to do is not working. And it was yeah. just sort of funny for him to like remind the interviewer that it's yeah. not just about, I don't know, you know, telling off a politician. He's a comedian. It's jokes. Yes.
1: And that's the, that's the craziest thing is too, is like everything he did in that was hilarious. If you're a comedian, if you understand humor, you know how crazy hard it was for him to craft that thing. Yeah. But for the people who desperately needed that administration to get a public spanking. Yes. They didn't care if it was funny or not. They Correct. thought that guy was ranting. Like yes. they thought he was like giving it to them and then but if you're again if you're a comic, like if it's not done artfully, there's no point in doing it. Yes. Yep. And they people don't understand that.
0: Well, let me ask you a question that's similar to the, the piggybacks off what you just said. Sure. You're an experienced uh, seasoned headliner and one seventh co host of drinks, jokes and storytelling. Um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One seventh
1: makes it sound
0: so great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know how to build up my guests.
1: That's so good. One seventh.
0: But uh, what I wanted to ask is, if you were at the back of the room at like an open mic, are with younger, less experienced comedians, mm-hmm. and um, someone was trying some political or religious stuff, and you know, bombing, mm-hmm. what advice would you give a young comedian on on how to do satire right or better or?
1: Well right or better i mean if they were if they were you, are they bombing because they're not confident if they're bombing because they're not confident in their material mm-hmm. i would but their material is still good and there's substance there
0: right. i would
1: tell them to keep going and okay. not to worry so much about it you know um because i think i think it is important to do that kind of younger right. because the the earlier you start doing that and having those opinions and being confident enough to say them in front of strangers the fucking better at it you're gonna be right when, you know you're older same almost same with doing any kind of joke anyway if they're bombing at it and the jokes are not good i would i would say to just try to um work on what their opinion of it is because usually when comedians who are younger and try to do satire bomb at it because the jokes aren't good it's because their opinion on it isn't fully formed you know like i don't know if you feel like the, the same experience but like where you're like oh that's like a half like the joke's not working because he doesn't feel for it Right, Like, he just thinks, here's my topic. Yeah, I feel like that's a, that's a misstep I see all the time. Is like, they think, oh, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. I should probably feel this way about it. And right. there's no passion towards
0: it. As we, as we grasp towards, crawl towards a close here, is there anything about satire you want to say that we haven't um, gotten to yet? <clears throat> there's always a debate on how effective it is at
1: toppling a, you know, regime or anything sure. like that. <laughs> you know, I just want, like, one of the things I always, I always think when people have that debate is, like, I don't think it's a about toppling it I think it's about taking care of the people more like yeah maybe once in a while something breaks through and has such a massive impact that it sure. changes a little bit here and there but I think like the overall job of satire is to just let everyone kind of know you're not alone sure you know we're all feeling the same shit we all kind of think mm-hmm. you know the same thing here okay. and it's a relief it's a release you know what I mean like yeah if I think if people focus too hard on like whether it succeeds or fails, at changing a thing sure. you're gonna feel miserable <laughs> but it, 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 you, right. you you just are because it, it very how often does it actually work you know what i mean like sure. how how many years did john stewart spend going after fox news yes fox news is still around but we all feel like at least we're not insane yeah because if you're if you're if you don't have that right. and you're only watching fox news and you're only with your fucking family every thanksgiving you're like i i must be i must be a lunatic
0: right <laughs> because
1: everyone else is like you know they think sure. john hannity's a god but
0: I mean, yes. I mean, again, it's sort of uh, coming back to that comedy experience for the audience as being therapeutic. Yeah. You even make a little community together in the show. We sometimes say that about the theater, like the audience is a temporary community. Yes. And they have a shared experience, and maybe they they need that release just to laugh, mm-hmm. even if yeah. they're uh, pro, you know, Trump. Doesn't mean they don't have anxiety about life (laughs) yeah
1: and like you know a lot of the messages so like i'll post a lot of stuff on facebook and Mm -hmm. sometimes it's like literally just my opinion like especially during this pandemic like i'm not trying to you know get Mm -hmm. on a thing or whatever i have opinions and you know i'm going to express them and use my social media yada yada yada. Mm -hmm. when i do write jokes about that kind of stuff too like the messages that i get from people are like that's hilarious and thank god you said that i thought i was the only one so again it just comes back to a community thing where you're like oh yeah no like i i I like making these jokes and saying these things in a way because there are people people do think that like right. I'm the only one who thinks this.
0: And so, if anyone out there who is a John Pavaromo fan, you are not the only one who thinks that way. <laughs> there are more of you who think he's funny. It's not just you. There's a whole community.
1: Yes, there's a bunch of us. Of out there. like-minded We're all short and we have a lot of hair. Yeah, that's a lot of hair.
0: <laughs> all right, John, well thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate yeah, thanks, you coming on and talking comedy and satire and everything else we talked about.
1: Thank you, dude. Yeah, it was a, it was a blast. I love doing this.
0: Thank you very much, John. I really appreciated the talk, really appreciated the insight, really appreciated hearing about his writing gigs for uh, comedians who were appearing on news talk shows. Anyway, do check out his Instagram, his Facebook, some of his artwork, some of his t-shirts. If coronavirus allows, make sure you go check him out live. I'll have a link to his website and all that good stuff down in the description of this podcast. Hey, so let's finish this darn thing up. Besides thanking the wonderful John Poverono, I want to thank my musicians who produced my theme music. That's Mark Bell on the organ playing Bach, remixed by my friend, audio engineer, Jeff Geddert. Thank you, gentlemen. I just love season two's theme music. And uh, Jeff also helps me out with some of the post-production and writing chores of this podcast. Thank you, Jeff, for doing that. Most of all, if you made it all the way to the end of this podcast, thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to tell your friends about us, share what we do, Put it up on your social media. If you tell two people and they tell two people, we can all be in a shampoo commercial from the 70s together. And if you have questions or comments, always send them into to thecomicalheathen at gmail.com. And later in the year, hopefully, we'll get some live dates secured. And I'll see you out on the road. Till then, just remember, it may be your dogma, but it's my karma. And I'm all about spreading the love.